Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod. From a grocery rebate to immigration to affordable housing, we'll have the latest on the federal budget. Plus, another random stabbing outside Starbucks costs a husband and father his life. Why can't North American cities get control of their streets? And Kardashian curse. BC limits sale to diabetes drug Ozempic as Americans rush to buy the hyped celebrity weight loss drug from BC pharmacies. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Finance Minister Christia Freeland unveiled a second budget of the Liberals' mandate focusing on reducing spending. And he, as she says, they want to also support Canadians who have been hit hard by high inflation and rising interest rates. Now, for a government known for big spending and big deficits, this could be considered a smaller budget. In total, there is $43 billion of new spending. Here's Global News Ottawa correspondent David Aiken with a breakdown of today's budget. The budget centerpiece is a one-time cost-of-living rebate worth $467 for couples with children, $234 for single Canadians, and an extra $225 for seniors. The government is calling it a grocery rebate, but you can spend it on anything you want. It will be paid out to 11 million Canadians. When? That's TBD. The government also promises to lower credit card transaction fees for businesses and prohibit what it calls hidden junk fees that consumers pay. Things like roaming charges or surcharges for concert tickets, even excess baggage fees. Freeland also announced an expansion of what is now called the Canadian Dental Care Plan. That's a plan that had covered dental bills for children in lower income households. Now, by the end of 2023, Any uninsured person in a household earning less than $90,000 can get federal dental coverage. The government is also scaling back a planned tax hike on beer, wine and spirits. The alcohol excise tax will now jump 2% on April the 1st, rather than 6.5%. Overall, new spending commitments total $43 billion over the next five years. And most of that is a result of increased health transfers to the provinces. That was uh, Global News Auto correspondent David Aiken reporting. And as he said, $43 billion in new spending. Um, a large number, but when you compare it to past budgets, one could argue uh, small uh, in size uh, in regards to um, what the government uh, has been promising in the past. Now, Finance Minister Christia Freeland did say that she was trying to find a balance in regards to this particular budget. Take a listen. We needed in this budget to find a balance a balance between continuing to invest in Canadians, to invest in affordability for Canadians who are feeling the pinch of inflation right now. We know that fiscal responsibility matters. We know that maintaining Canada's AAA credit rating matters. We know that not adding fuel to the flames of inflation matters. That was Finance Minister Christia Freeland speaking earlier today. Joining me now is Dr. Alan Tupper. He's a professor in the Department of Political Science at UBC. Uh, Dr. Tupper, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, how would you describe this budget? 
Well, it's an interesting one for a lot of reasons. It's going to be very controversial, uh, as they always are, federal budgets and uh, budgets in general. But I, I think it's interesting in that it's very in line with what the Liberals have said they're going to do. It is a uh, got a lot of new money in one sense, and it's had a very heavy emphasis in this budget on the promotion of green industries, particular electricity, hydrogen, all these kinds of things. And uh, the argument there being it's essential to keep up with the Americans who are doing much, much more than this in terms of greening their economy under Biden. So it's got a lot of stuff. The dental care program and the health care expenditures are uh, being promised. The health care have all been negotiated in bilateral uh, deals with the provinces. And the uh, dental uh, care has been an expansion of a federal initiative that was led uh, to them by uh, the NDP. Mm-hmm. So the NDP is happy, but uh, it's 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 what we've seen from this government, and uh, it's not tough on spending in any really uh, dramatic way, and it has a lot of money going out, and in some sense, there'll be a large debate about whether that's a good sort of budget for the times. The Conservatives will have their views, that is for sure. Um, your sense of... Uh, deficits and debt, and I, I think back to the Jean Chrétien era and uh, Paul Martin era, uh, where the deficit was eliminated. And the Liberals are proposing to cut more than fifteen billion dollars in spending from the government's books over the next five years with this budget. Uh, they say they want to reduce the amount of departments and crown corporations uh, on how much they spend on contracting out services and in travel, um, and they figure that'll be fifteen billion over five years. Now, this government has had deficits, and at one point there was talk of. Uh, uh, going back into the black, limiting the deficit by 2027. No one's saying that now. Do deficits matter to the public at this particular point in a pandemic and a post-pandemic environment in your mind? Well, it's a very important question. Uh, Deficits matter in one sense when they get excessively large and lead to tax increases and other potential problems. But I think at this point, the Liberals' guess and hunch and want is that Canadians say, look, we've been through the pandemic, which drove up spending by governments everywhere, Canada being no less an exception. That's just the nature of the thing. It had a severe economic impact and a tremendous impact on many businesses and individuals. So those things had to be done. And the other things that continue to be huge public priorities are healthcare spending. And that is there. The controversial ones, I think, are what to what degree public opinion supports the Liberals' initiatives on uh, the green economy. And I think they certainly will have greater purchase given their emphasis on the U.S. and the need to really keep going into that because it's a global problem. The other subtle message, I think, Jazz, in this whole budget was that We've got to look differently at the world, and we've got to spend a lot more money dealing with our friends, our neighbors, and and a lot less time emphasis on effort on China. Hmm. So we have a major foreign policy push in this that's manifest in the budget. But I think on balance, we'll see. 
and as as I said earlier, uh, Jazz, the uh, the uh, big issue here will be the conservatives. We'll have a very very difficult different position on this whole matter, uh, and they're moving. They think they can win the next election, obviously, and so that's going to be a big controversy and this budget and any others the liberals do before the next election will be really at the heart of it mm-hmm. well pierre polyev will be joining us on the show at five o'clock to give us his uh, perspective and view on the budget uh, that's it, right after the five o'clock news uh dr Rappi, you do raise a very good issue it, it i'm not saying it's two perspectives on canada uh, whether it's conservative or liberal but there's certainly almost stark differences in, in the sense that, you know, I think there's a greater, greater emphasis and conversation on deficits uh, and debt on the conservative side, a greater conversation in and around even law and order to a certain degree in regards to dollars that we're spending there. It's a pretty stark difference, isn't there, between the liberals and, and the conservatives, even with this budget and their perspectives of, on, on where Canada is. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's those positions are going to become very clearly uh, laid out in the next uh, several years as we move towards the election. I think the Conservatives will go forward and it'll be interesting to hear what Paul Iver, uh, says later this afternoon at 5 about this. And uh, the other thing, though, is it, they will stress the need to eliminate debt, to reduce the role of government, to put more money in the hands of Canadians. That will be very different messages. The, the Liberals certainly know those kinds of issues, but their priorities have been on the other side of the ledger. There's no doubt about it, and they're uh, lesser concerned with debts and deficits. The big question, I think, Jazz, in all this is to what degree the Canadian public really is concerned about the overall state of the federal finances. And in some ways, a lot of it is symbolic, to people to say that that is going to be X billion as opposed to a smaller amount and all those kinds of things have a degree of abstraction. The real thing is you've got to be able to make it clear to Canadians, one side of the debate or the other, that they're genuinely better off with this kind of budget that and this kind of spending or they're worse off. And you've got to make it speak to people in their day-to-day lives. And in this budget, you might say there's some quite a few elements. The doubling or the retention of the uh, GST rebate premium for people in very low incomes mm-hmm. is a substantial move. The elimination of the, re- the, the reduction of the alcohol excise tax from 6 to 2% could have a significant impact on people depending on their lifestyle. And uh, the other one, there's there's a couple of other points just very quickly on this that Mm -hmm. might have general appeal. There's been a there's a very substantial increase to the student grant elements of the Canada Student Loan Plan, which hasn't been talked about yet. And there's uh, the other thing, the elimination of the capacity of the uh, uh, credit card companies to uh, impose large surcharges on people. Uh, because of the rates, in effect, that businesses are passing on to uh, consumers. So we don't know. 
But yeah, your, raised, your your perspective is absolutely correct. Yeah, the grocery the views of the country. The grocery rebate, I think, is very important for the moment. But I think that when they talk about the junk fees, you know, the 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 ability to have uh, the ability to charge your cell phone, whatever company you buy a cell phone from, it's very retail. Uh, the junk yeah. fees, once again, people are tired of the excess baggage fees at, at airlines and all those types of things. So it's very much retail uh, as well. So it'll be yeah. very interesting to see how people respond to that uh, as well. Doctor Topper, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Good to talk to us. Let's talk about um, the uh, incident outside the Starbucks that occurred at the corner of Granville and West Pender uh, late uh, Sunday afternoon. Paul Stanley Schmidt, 37, was stabbed outside uh, that coffee shop. Uh, Mr. Uh, Schmidt was rushed to hospital later, where he later died. Uh, the suspect, 32-year-old Inderdeep Singosal, was arrested at the scene as well and has been charged with second-degree murder. Police are continuing to ask anybody who witnessed what happened to come forward and, and of course, not share a video, of course, on uh, of the scene on social media. Now, the incident, of course, is shocking. It is senseless and, once again, uh, leads to a conversation about how safe our c- cities truly are. I mean, this is not uh, an isolated situation. When you look at the situation in communities like Seattle and Portland, uh, in Toronto, major cities across North America are dealing with this issue when it comes to violence, random violence, uh, during COVID and even uh, post-COVID as well. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Ken Sim, the mayor of Vancouver. Mayor Sim, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, your thoughts, first of first of all, in regards to this um, uh, senseless, uh, fatal stabbing as mayor of the city. Um, do you want to address in regard, address the situation itself? Yeah. Well, first of all, it, it, it's absolutely tragic, and um, you know, to uh, Mr. Schmidt's family, his friends, uh, all his loved ones, our hearts uh, and thoughts go out to all of them right now in this terrible time, and. Uh, yeah, look. It's uh, anytime someone loses their life in our city, or in general for that matter, it's you know it's it's uh, it's upsetting, and you know people deserve to be safe in the city of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, we all know uh, during the last uh, election campaign, uh, the civic election, you had uh, promised 100 more police officers and the hiring of 100 more mental health nurses. Um, many would argue that even hiring all of those people by now would not have stopped what occurred. What else needs to be done as a city, as a province, as a country to deal with this issue of random violence, where in this case, Mr. Schmidt's wife and and uh, child were also at that Starbucks as well to witness this? Yeah, well, you know, that that's a pretty big question. You know, at, at the end of the day, we have to get to the root causes of a lot of uh, uh, you know, a lot of these incidents, and, you know, even if we do get to them, there will be the occasional incident. Let's just be very clear about that. Um, now, we don't know, um, you know, the, the investigation is still ongoing, so I do not want to speculate um, mm-hmm. on this one specific case. But if we're talking about, um, you know, a mental health issue, if there was one in this uh, instance, then obviously, you know, more mental health supports, um, you know, it sort of ties into you know, what uh, a solution like CAR 87, CAR 88 could do um, to help uh, the situation or it could get down to root cause issues, you know, um, you know, uh, things in our healthcare system that are, you know, provincial and federally um, uh, regulated, um, you know, coming up with solutions around there so we never get to this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But, you know, even, even with all these things in place, there will be uh, incidents from time to time. That's just, the, you know, the brutal reality um, uh, of these things. Uh, you know, I know this is happening in Seattle. It's happening in Portland. It's happening in San Francisco. It's happening in Los Angeles. I was just reading an article the other day on the challenges of violent crime in Atlanta, Georgia as well. Um, do you consider your city safe? Because this is quite brazen, uh, it, but we're seeing so many of these stories. Uh, and you, you also said that, look, it is random. Uh, but at the same time, people ha- want to feel safe when they're out and about shopping, grabbing a coffee in this case. Uh, do you think that's been lost now? Well, I, I think there's two things. I think there's the, the feeling of uh, feeling safe and then, then there's reality, how safe are we? And so, um, you know, when you look at how safe this city is, it depends on who, you, uh, what other city you compare to. So having um, having not looked at the data, I can't tell you if we're uh, safer than San Francisco, Atlanta, or Detroit. I would assume that we are, uh, but don't quote me on that. Um, but that, you know, at the end of the day, that's almost irrelevant. It's, you know, do people feel safe in our city? And when we were elected, um, the reason we were elected by such a large margin was in part because people didn't feel safe. And that's why we, you know, um, one of the things that we uh, uh, promoted was um, hiring 100 additional police officers and 100 mental health workers or 100 mental health nurses to help get to the root cause of some of these challenges and providing uh, empathetic and uh, effective solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just the start. There's there's going to be a, a lot more work needs to be done. Um and you know we inherited a situation, and we're not we're not you know we're not trying to litigate the past very far from it. We have a situation that we inherited, and we're going to deal with. Um, and it was a challenging situation that's been growing over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Doesn't and Vancouver though take a reputational hit? Uh, first of all, it's safety and security of its citizens. But when you talk about reputation, uh, when you look at uh, you know people's uh, surveys of Chinatown and feeling safe from walking around Chinatown, and I remember a call story last year where tourists did not leave good reviews. Uh, of traveling and working uh, through uh, Chinatown. You see random violence like this outside of a coffee shop, and there's many of them on an almost daily basis, perhaps not murder, but certainly random acts of violence, people feeling threatened, just not safe. It's fair to say that this city is taking a reputational hit when you talk about the random issue of violence and people's safety and security. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, it doesn't even matter what I say um, at the end of the day. Uh, if people still feel unsafe, they're going to feel unsafe. And I, I don't want to um, you know, belittle uh, that fact. It's something that's incredibly important to us. And what I can say um, is we're making some you know, we're making some meaningful progress in turning that story around and actually changing the situation around. So when you look at the downtown east side in Chinatown, for example, um, you know, uh, not too, too long ago, there was a peak of about 180 um, uh, tents uh, uh, on Hastings, and we're down to about 77, 78. So we're making progress there. The streets are visibly uh, a little like cleaner, uh, and don't get me wrong, we still have work to do, but they're cleaner. And there's activity coming back to Chinatown and Gastown. Um, so yes, we've made progress. We still have a long way to go, and we're committed to doing that. And you know, it's our goal to make Vancouver um, not just feel uh, safer, but also um, becomes a much safer place that's vibrant, where people feel comfortable walking along on the streets, and um, you know, um, 
going to our local shops and our restaurants and uh, contributing to the community. Uh, Mayor Sim, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Awesome, Jazz. Thank you very much. And remember, you can always call me Ken. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. One of the uh, things that did stick out for me was, of course, the alcohol tax. That was set to uh, go up on April 1st, uh, and I do believe that was just over 6% uh, increase, uh, uh, 6.3% increase, and now it'll be reduced down to a 2% increase. So you still will be paying more as of April 1st, but it's not as much uh, as we had originally thought. Joining us now is Jeff Guinard, president of Able BC, which is the BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Jeff, thank you for joining us. No, it's my pleasure. Um, how do you feel about this? I, I, heard, I heard the announcement. I go, it's kind of like getting mugged, and the robber gets 100 bucks, but he hands you 20 bucks back. Hey, really, sorry, I got to go. <laughs> you know, so what are your yeah, thoughts on yeah. this? <laughs> well, the good news is today is instead of having the largest tax increase on alcohol in the past four decades, uh, the federal government listened to industry, and they came up with a much more logical approach here. And we're only going to go up to cap it at 2% this year. So the, this liquor tax, these excise duties we pay, we, we've had to pay those every year. Those are something that manufacturers of alcohol pay in, in um, here in Canada. But when the index did those to inflation back in 2017, that didn't seem like a big deal going up a percent to two every year. But 6.3% right now, that's just far too much for businesses to pay. I mean, you know how our industry's been struggling to come out of the pandemic, and we we just didn't have the money, and we were worried about putting prices up for consumers as well. So really good news for industry today, and it's going to save us about $45 million overall, which is incredible. And when you, in, in regards to the announcement, though, I mean, the, the escalator tax is brought in, so it's a one-time yeah. tax where you discuss it in, in, in the House of Commons. It's passed. It was automatically, so there's essentially an automatic increase every year, which you don't have to yeah. debate, you don't have to talk about. It just gets, uh, it just increases unless the industry brings up the issue. Are you still okay mm-hmm. with this automatic escalator tax then with the cost, uh, with the, with the, with going up with the cost of inflation? Well, it's difficult to conceive that Parliament is choosing not to look at the numbers every year. I mean, that's one of the core responsibilities of our democracy. Mm-hmm. But from our perspective, the, the first thing you have to do is stop the bleeding here. So by saying we were going to give you, our industry, the largest tax increase in 40 years made no sense. So the first job was, let's get a cap on that to something more reasonable. Uh, and now I can imagine we're going to be spending some time over the next year talking about what a more logical formula might be looking forward. As soon as the escalator came in in 2017, and that's when the federal government said we should index inflation to, or sorry, index the excise duties to inflation, uh, industry had concerns about that. We, we brought up this scenario. We're like, well, what if inflation goes crazy? Uh, and at the time, government just, you know, wasn't paying too much attention to it. But then when it came to 6.3% this year, you can imagine a whole industry coming out of the pandemic with all the cost increases we've experienced. I mean, our, our budgets have gone up the same way. Our budgets have gone up with your grocery budget and gas and insurance. It just felt like too much, so we're we're happy for this app, but there is more work to do to get the right solution for the future. Mm-hmm. And just for our listeners, that that, that alcohol tax increase impacts uh, spirits, wine, and and of course beer. That's right. Uh, um, Everything. Yeah. So Jeff, I want I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to understand in the Canadian Taxpayers Federation did a little survey. They took 125 bucks, and mm-hmm. they picked up I guess two bottles of wine, 24 pack of beer, and a 26 ounce bottle of whiskey. Uh, based on their assessment, that $125 that you spend, $76 of that uh, just yeah. goes to tax. Why are we so taxed when it comes to alcohol in this country? And to give me a sense of how, compare that to other countries. Yeah, so British Columbia in particular has some of the highest taxes, markups, and fees on alcohol 
anywhere in North America. So the way to think of it, though, is excise tax is one of many taxes that are paid. That's paid by the producer. And then provincial governments, for example, here in British Columbia, the D.C. government makes $1.5 billion every year off of alcohol. And that's taxes and markups and a whole bunch of stuff that goes into the price before a retailer or a pub or a bar even buys it. And then when we sell it, we have to put on, you know, margins so that you can afford to pay for our staff and our insurance and make a profit for the owner. So at the end of the day, uh, yeah, we have very expensive liquor prices as it is already. So adding in, you know, an inflationary increase and getting up to 6.3% on the federal portion of the excise tax was just going to be compounded through that entire system. As for why we've chosen to do this, you'll notice that um, every province in Canada does it a bit differently. And um, it's not something that we're happy with because we have to pass those off to consumers and it's certainly something government could look at, but it's a lot of money and they could spend on a lot of other social programs and things that governments need as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I, I don't uh, for a moment, question there are some implications of alcohol, of course, the repercussions, people don't drink responsibly, can lead to accidents, sure. that impacts our health care, um, you know, law enforcement, courts, all those things do cost money and sometimes they are the repercussions of people not using uh, alcohol and drinking responsibly and I do understand that. And, and distribution of alcohol is still controlled by by the provincial government, and it is lucrative for them or for taxpayers. Uh, in yes. regards to moving forward here, um, when I look at this industry, uh, I still see us paying a lot of money as consumers to, for yeah. drinking beer, drinking wine, and spirits compared to other nations. Is there ever a yeah. time you can see where we can streamline this or at least make it easier for people? Like I'm, I'm not here encouraging everybody to drink, but it is one of those things people do enjoy in life with a glass of wine after, you know, with dinner and all that. It's just, it's getting so expensive to the point where you kind of wonder, like, why is it so expensive when you can go just across the border and pick up a, a much cheaper bottle of wine, beer, alcohol, or you go to other nations, even highly mm-hmm. taxed nations like France and Italy and the UK, and they're still paying less than we are. Yeah, it's very true. There's a few things about that. And I guess the first one to say, I mean, that's entirely why an association like ABLE exists, right? I mean, we're out there trying to fight for our businesses to ensure that they're paying a reasonable cost so we don't have to charge consumers more. And I, I absolutely know that, you know, British Columbians, when they travel down to the United States, they look at the different tax and markup system and they get the same or a comparable product for significantly less in those jurisdictions. And I, I absolutely find that frustrating as well. And you can even go to a different province sometimes and find the exact same bottle for significantly less than what you have here in BC. One of the other frustrations I have is going back to the excise duties is, you know, yes, we've succeeded in getting the federal government to do something more logical here, but this is happening today, which is March 28th, for a price increase that was set to be implemented on April 1st, so in three days. Every single liquor manufacturer, producer in British Columbia has already submitted their prices to the liquor distribution branch, the people that we buy alcohol from, as mm-hmm. pubs and bars and liquor stores. They have to submit them 30 or 60 days in advance. So all of those tax increases and excise duties increases are already baked into the price you're going to pay for this month. So now businesses have to make a decision how to manage that. Do we you know, increase prices for this month so we can lower them next month? Uh, and the manufacturers are kind of in the same boat as well. They've ended up how do they how do they adjust that in a timely manner so that consumers don't end up paying the price for it? So, lots of work still to do, uh, and this is uh, this is what we do every day. <laughs> I know you do. What well, is good news? I mean, it's still a two percent increase, but it's not six point three. So, you know what? That's yeah. a win, and I'll take it. Jeff, thank you. It's my pleasure, Jeff. Have a great day. 
often uh, when it comes to government and budgets, it's often stated that uh, this is where you see your government's priorities and governing is about choosing your priorities. Well, our next guest says that spending on retirees and debt servicing charges uh, dwarf new spending on younger Canadians when it comes to this latest budget. Joining me now to talk about the, the generational divide is Dr. Paul Kershaw. He's the director of the Master of Public uh, Health Program at UBC's uh, School of Population and Public Health. He's also the founder of Generation Squeeze. Dr. Kershaw, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me back. Uh, how stark is the difference when we talk about uh, spending priorities between an older generation and younger Canadians? Oh, it's pretty darn stark in this budget um, and previous year's budgets, but it's really coming to a head right now. Let me start with a line item you may not have chatted too much about today, which is how much interest we're paying on previous unpaid bills in the federal government, so previous debts. Mm -hmm. Interest payments are going to go up $62 bucks over the next five years. Is that a lot? Is that a little? Well, that amount of additional spending on interest is more than the entire additional spending we will add for child care. We will add for employment insurance or what we'll add for the Canada Child Benefit, which delivers income support for families with kids. More interest payments going to pay down the debt than those three programs together. I think that's just quite astonishing. And yet, despite that, this is a federal budget that's going to be incurring $132 billion in additional deficits over the next five years, even though we're not in recession. And... That, again, makes me wonder, like, why is that happening? Is it because we're investing so much in housing to address unaffordability for younger people or climate change, which is such a risk to their financial security and their health? But no, what's really driving the ongoing deficits when we're not in recession is growth in spending for the retirees in our, lo- our lives we love. This is my mom's demographic, but they're going to get $85 billion more in old age security spending and another $25 billion more in medical care spending. Important things. But those are what are driving the large deficits going forward because we haven't had a hard conversation with our aging loved ones about, did you pay enough in taxes while you were working to cover the cost of what you now want to use? So basically, in regards to the numbers, when you talk about your mom's generation, it's about $190 billion in new money for retirees by 2027-2028, and that includes CPP, old age security, uh, $25 billion for Medicare for, Medicare for Canadians age 65+. plus. Um, isn't that how our systems always work, though? Like, you, you pay your taxes during your working age from 18 to 65, and part of those taxes means you pay for uh, those that came before you and they are retired because they, when they were working, were paying for somebody else before them. And I'm hoping one day, as I work and you work, yeah. that those after us come and pay for our retirement as well. Isn't that how the system works, though? That's how the system works, but we have to have see how that system interacts with a demographic bulge. So everyone knows what we call, we call an aging population are baby boomers. We call them a boom because they were a large, large generational cohort. When baby boomers came of age as young adults, there were seven workers for every retiree. Now there are 3.3 workers for every retiree. That makes a massive difference. What that means is uh, um, boomers, while they were working, paid taxes according to the rules of the day, but the rules of the day had them pay for a relatively small proportion of retirees. That was a good deal for boomers. It meant that they didn't have to pay entirely for the care they were going to want to use. 
we started to recognize that would be a problem in the mid-1990s, and we said, oh my gosh, the Canada Public Pension Plan risks going bankrupt. If we don't ask baby boomers to start paying more now, that will be more in line with what they want to draw down later when they retired. So in the mid-90s, we increased by 65% the contributions we had to make to CPP. But we didn't do that for old age security and medical care. And because we didn't, Mm. Now we are really seeing our federal and provincial budgets struggle to balance the books, and the old age security is a huge, huge, huge part of the deficits that we're running in the next five years. So in, in the, the conversation now is about of housing, and that wouldn't have happened without a millennial generation, perhaps Gen Xers as well, who really said, look, we have a housing crisis, we need to focus on this. I think everybody recognizes that. That's a post-boomer conversation, although you know, people on fixed incomes also have housing challenges. But there is a younger generation that is more vocal, more engaged. We wouldn't have had this housing debate and conversation today or uh, 15 years ago. It is the coming of age of millennials and Gen Xers and whatever you, whatever generation you want to talk about. So aren't we, aren't they now sort of, aren't they able now to be part of that political and public discourse where they can change some of this, number one? Because I don't, I'm not sure how you change this. Like you cannot take away CPP from, from the elderly. They've paid into it. It's part of our generational deal that we had, old age security, all that. How do you fix this then? So CPP is actually the thing we should be most proud of. CPP, we did adapt it to uh, three decades ago, 25 years ago, I should say, and it's working quite well. You draw out largely what you contributed, especially at a generational level. Old age security and the medical care are not like that. So we at least have to recognize there's a big problem. That would be a huge first step. We have to support, as you said, the millennials and Gen Zs and Gen X to actually make that case to our aging loved ones. And then we can ask ourselves, what can we do about it? I think that to some degree we need to be looking at those who are more affluent in retirement and say, might you be able to contribute more right now so that we don't, so that you don't as a generation leave large bills for your kids and grandchildren. Where we find that additional resource to draw from our affluent retirees is an ongoing question. I've been on your show and on CKNW more generally talking about housing wealth might be a good place to start. But we, no matter what, we need our budget to have this hard truth conversation. Our loved ones who are aging, they paid taxes according to the rules of the day, but the rules of the day were stacked against their kids and grandchildren, and that's why the federal government can't balance its books, even though it's not in recession. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to having this conversation uh, later as well, because I think it is, it is an important one. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Finance Minister Christia Freeland unveiled the second budget of the Liberals' mandate, fo- mandate focusing on reducing spending while they say they want to support Canadians who have been hit hard by high inflation and rising interest rates. In total, there is about $43 billion of new spending. Here is Global News Ottawa correspondent David Aiken with a breakdown of today's budget. The budget centerpiece is a one-time cost-of-living rebate worth $467 for couples with children. for single Canadians and an extra $225 for seniors. The government is calling it a grocery rebate, but you can spend it on anything you want. It will be paid out to 11 million Canadians. When? That's TBD. The government also promises to lower credit card transaction fees for businesses and prohibit what it calls hidden junk fees that consumers pay. Things like roaming charges or surcharges for concert tickets, even excess baggage fees. Freeland also announced an expansion of what is now called the Canadian Dental Care Plan. That's a plan that had covered dental bills for children in lower income households. Now, by the end of 2023, 
any uninsured person in a household earning less than $90,000 can get federal dental coverage. The government is also scaling back a planned tax hike on beer, wine and spirits. The alcohol excise tax will now jump 2% on April the 1st rather than 6.5%. Overall, new spending commitments total $43 billion over the next five years and most of that is a result of increased health transfers to the provinces. That is Global News Auto correspondent David Aiken. Well, our next guest uh, calls today's budget a full frontal attack on the paychecks of hardworking Canadians. Pierre Polyev is leader of the Conservative Party and leader of the official opposition. Mr. Polyev, thank you for joining us today. Good to be with you. Why do you think this is a full frontal attack on the paychecks of hardworking Canadians? Because it will cost Canadians more and allow them to bring home less. Everyone agrees now. The debate is over. Government deficits are driving inflation. That's not, it used to be, it was just me saying that. Now, former Liberal Finance Minister Bill Morneau, the governor of the Bank of Canada, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, they all agree. Deficits drive inflation. More dollars buying fewer goods means higher prices. Today, we saw the Liberals add another $43 billion of inflationary deficit spending. They'll push up interest rates and eventually taxes as well. There's a war on work in Trudeau's Canada. doesn't matter how hard you work because when you get it all clawed back with taxes, it's nearly impossible to get ahead. So Canadians will pay more to bring home less, and that's why Conservatives will be voting against this inflationary scam. Now, there's been deficit spending uh, with the uh, federal Liberals since, uh, I believe it was 2016, 2017, in, that, in and around that area. They had one time talked about uh, uh, eliminating the deficit by 2027. That certainly isn't happening at this particular point. However, some, some would argue that Canadians are hurting. We have high inflation. We have still people though, uh, dealing, with, uh, in a, uh, dealing with the post-COVID environment, not having the jobs uh, that they once had, uh, businesses still struggling, high interest rates that people still need help, Canadians need help from their government, and that it is not a time to yet start cutting deeply. What do you say to that argument? That would be to, to confuse the cure with the disease. The reason Canadians are suffering is because the cost of government is driving up the cost of living. A half a trillion dollars of inflationary deficits, which they've added to today, a bit up the cost of the goods we buy and the interest we pay. Higher taxes, including the carbon tax, which will rise on your gas, heat, and groceries this coming Saturday. Mm-hmm. Higher income taxes, higher taxes on alcohol, and countless other products are driving the cost of living crisis. So this government under Justin Trudeau is not the solution to rising costs. It is the cause of rising costs. It's trying to cap, time to cap spending, cut waste and reform and lower taxes to make work pay. So folks can bring home what they earn. Yeah. So uh, today the government did announce, of course, a GST tax credit, which uh, would uh, be available, I think, for 11 million Canadians. Uh, they've also offered a grocery rebate, $467, uh, one-time rebate for a family of four. That's about $467, $225 for a single senior. Uh, if you're talking about Canadians not wanting to see deficit spending, where would you cut? Because it is easy to say that we're spending too much, a government spending too much, but where would you begin cutting? Well, the first thing to do is stop adding to the problem. Every time they roll out a new budget, they add, today, they added $43 
billion dollars of new spending that we weren't doing before, spending we were living without prior to this budget. So <laughs> you're in a hole, stop digging. That's the obvious thing. I bring in a law that requires government to find a dollar savings for every new dollar they spend. Secondly, I cut back on the high-priced consultants that they literally increased the amount they spend on consultants by over 100% under Trudeau. The average Canadian family now spends $1,400 in federal taxes to pay for consultants at the same time as our public service has grown by 30%. Bring the work in-house. Have the public servants do the work they're paid for rather than contracting out to $3,000 a day consultants. Those are just a few examples of obvious waste that could easily be eliminated uh, in order to lower the cost of government and let people bring home more of their paychecks. Hmm. Um, let's just touch a little bit on uh, the issue of housing just for a moment. It is a huge challenge, of course, here in Vancouver and many major uh, cities in Canada. What would you like to have seen in regards to uh, you know, helping Canadians deal with the issue of unaffordable housing, whether it be uh, more stock or helping people get into the housing market? What would you like to have seen? More homes. It's very simple. We don't have enough houses. We have the fewest houses per capita of any G7 country. In fact, the number of houses per thousand Canadians has actually gone down under Justin Trudeau as the population growth has grown faster than the housing supply. Why is that? Government gatekeepers. Government gatekeepers block housing construction. In Vancouver, your city, the cost of red tape is $650,000 for every single unit of housing. And this means fewer houses, fewer, and that drives up the price. Under Justin Trudeau, the average mortgage payment has doubled, the needed down payment has doubled, and rent has doubled. Um, so the solution is to bring in punishing fines for big city politicians that block housing construction and bring in building bonuses for those allow, who allow construction to go ahead, require every federally funded transit station be pre-approved for high-density apartments all around, even on top of the stations, sell off 15% of the 37,000 federal buildings so that we can convert those into housing. In other words, we need to bring homes workers can afford by removing gatekeepers to, to speed up uh, permits and build more houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just want to go uh, move uh, just uh, off the issue of, of the of the budget just for a moment. Um, on Sunday, late Sunday afternoon, Paul Stanley Schmidt was outside a Starbucks at the corner of Granville and West Pender here in downtown Vancouver. He was there with his family. Uh, there was some sort of altercation. We don't have all the information yet, and I'll be the first to admit that. Uh, but he um, was rushed to hospi- hospital where he later died. It has shocked many, of course, here in Metro Vancouver who are already concerned about random violence. I had the mayor on earlier today on the show talking about the issue as well. What would you like to see done? Because the mayor has already promised 100 new police officers, 100 new mental health nurses. They are well on their way of, of hiring those um, those uh, two promises that he made. He said it would get done. It is happening. But what else do you like? To, would you like to see done if elected as prime minister? What else would you do to make our cities uh, safe? It's what we have to undo. We have to undo all of the liberal NDP catch and release uh, taxpayer-funded drug policies that have turned our streets into war zones. Under Justin Trudeau's eight years in office, violent crime has grown by 32%. Gang killings up 
almost 100% in that same time period. The cause is very simple. It's cash and release bail. Our police officers arrest uh, the same person often three times in the same day. He's released again and again and again. In Vancouver, the same 40 offenders were arrested 6,000 times in one year. That's 150 arrests per offender per year. This is Justin Trudeau's bail system. He brought it in with his legislation. I get rid of it and require jail, not bail, for repeat violent offenders. Jail, not bail, for repeat violent offenders. Keep them behind bars until their trial is done and their sentence is complete rather than releasing them to reoffend. Also, I ban hard drugs, put the addicts in treatment, and I would make the corrupt big pharma companies pay the price for it by suing them in a $45 billion lawsuit for having brought the drugs in in the first place. Well, much to talk about, Mr. Polyev. I appreciate your time today on regard the, regarding the budget and, of course, the issue of, of random violence in our communities as well. Look forward to having you in the studio very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. we got to bring home lower prices, bring home powerful paychecks, bring home speed for the sport, and bring home safe streets. Let's bring it home. Thank you. When I look around this room, I can't help but wonder, is Ozempic right for me? Welcome back. That's Jimmy Kimmel, who sparked laughter there at the Oscars not too long ago when he referenced one of the weight loss drugs uh, that's taken Hollywood by storm. Ozempic, of course, has surged in popularity after becoming the first drug, uh, one of the first drugs uh, proven to aid weight loss. Now, there's a big problem, of course, for people dealing with type 2 diabetes who use Ozempic as well to manage their blood sugar and reduce their risk of heart problems and other complications. I mean, after all, the main reason for manufacturing Ozempic in the first place was to help people dealing with type 2 diabetes. Now, the drug acts like a hormone in the brain, which causes people to feel less hungry. And of course, that slows the clearing of food from the stomach, uh, leading to weight loss. Many celebrities have used Ozempic uh, from Mindy Kaling uh, to uh, many others. Uh, and it is a huge, huge um, uh, drug that people use now for weight loss and for the issue of dealing with type 2 diabetes, but it's become a huge issue for the BC government because it's taking steps to ensure diabetes patients in the province continue to have access to Ozempic. Uh, to date, now, BC has not experienced any shortages of the drug, but the government said today that PharmaNet data indicates that an unusually high percentage of Ozempic is being purchased by U.S. patients from BC pharmacies. Joining me now to talk a little bit about Ozempic is Adrian Dix, BC's Minister of Health. Minister Dix, thanks for joining us. Happy to be on the show, Jeff. Uh, How challenging was the issue of Americans and cross-border purchases of Ozempic that you had to come in and uh, to raise this issue and to protect the supply? How bad had it gotten? Well, it's an issue that we've been monitoring. And when I raised when we extended PharmaCare coverage uh, for Ozempic for people with type 2 diabetes in January, at that time, about 9% of our uh, dispenses in British Columbia went to U.S. residents, about 9%, which was a lot higher than the average. Typically, it's 0.4%. So that's 22 times higher in January. That number has now increased to uh, 15% of all dispenses, and 19% of the of patients who received the drug uh, uh, by a pharmacy being U.S. residents. So a lot more U.S. residents are getting uh, Ozempic from B.C. pharmacies. And more, more significant than that, 
when you think of that, 19%, and it's usually 0.4%, that's a lot more. But of those dispenses, uh, the 15,700 dispenses I talked about, 13,100 of them were issued at two BC pharmacies. So this was two clearly internet pharmacies that were doing most of the dispensing to U.S. residents. And 95% of those prescriptions, almost all of them in other words, were, came, came, were written by one or more prescribers who identified themselves as doctors from Nova Scotia. So those are all the elements of that there, that we really have a small a couple of, a uh, few doctors or one doctor in Nova Scotia, we're not sure the number, who are prescribing through a BC pharmacy and having Ozempic sent to the United States. This is a, a, a drug in hot demand, and we can discuss the reasons why it's in such hot demand that include massive advertising and a lot of buzz around the drug for off-label uses, principally weight loss. But uh, we need that drug for British Columbians, and we don't have enough Ozempic in BC to cover the entire U.S. market uh, for people who might want, uh, might want our Ozempic. Well, there's no doubt uh, this particular drug, Zempic, uh, has gained uh, much mainstream um, interest. In fact, I think Jimmy Kimmel made a joke about it uh, among celebrities at the, this year's Oscars. Um, I guess the, the, the question here uh, is, how is this allowed to happen that a doctor in Nova Scotia can prescribe uh, this particular drug through an internet pharmacy in British Columbia, and we as taxpayers in British Columbia, and those most importantly, those who need Ozempic for diabetes, um, are on, aren't able to access uh, this very drug. Uh, is there a, a loophole in the system that we can, beyond just trying to restrict how much can be sold to people outside of Canada, is there, other, is there a broader issue that we have to look at when it comes to internet pharmacies? Well, well two points. One is uh, we want people, we want, for example, Jazz, if you were to go back to Ontario and you had a regular prescription for something, we, we'd want you to be able to fill it in Ontario, right? So we don't want um, more restrictions. We want more common sense here. In this, in this case, um, uh, th- there is obviously a process of prescription. It's hard to write, you know, 11,000 prescriptions for all drugs in a couple of months, never mind for one drug by a one small uh, one doctor or a small group of doctors from Nova Scotia. So what we want is to ensure when there's a shortage of supply of the drug, as there may be in the case of Ozempic, there isn't right now, but there may be in the future. We want to be able to restrict that so that British Columbians have access to it. It's not an issue of taxpayers, because obviously these are this is sales to the United States, so these aren't taxpayer-funded sales, but access to the drug matters. And uh, if uh, patients with type 2 diabetes need Ozempic in BC, we want to make sure that there's adequate supply here. And that's why we work with the drug company. But we can't allow, surely, the mass exporting of a drug intended for people in British Columbia to go on in this way. So we have to take some actions to make sure it doesn't happen. Do you think this is temporary? This, um, you know, these things are fads sometimes when it comes to weight loss. One uh, product becomes uh, very popular for a short period of time, and then uh, something else comes, becomes popular. Or do you think because of what Ozempic does, which is um, help people lose weight, that this is, is going to be an ongoing challenge? Well, it's, it's, first of all, in Canada, it's a type 2 diabetes drug. And it helps reduce blood sugars and helps with type 2 diabetes, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are a significant number of people in BC in the hundreds of thousands with type 2 diabetes. And the number of people since we changed the rules to, to cover more people increased in, uh, in uh, two months by about 25% in BC. 
the Ozempic has been found to, in our clinical analysis, to be a drug that really helps people. And if you talk to endocrinologists, they'll tell you the same thing. But this is a drug that's going to be here now and into the future for type 2 diabetes. The side effect of weight loss, which is not advertised directly, if you look at Canadian advertisements, which are more generic advertisement, just promoting the name of the drug, and American advertisements where they flash on the screen your weight loss potential with the drug are different. But we see, you know, King and Como and Cairo and all the American Seattle stations and CNN and other stations here in in British Columbia, right? So it has an impact on us. Mm-hmm. But I think the drug is here to stay. And this may not be the only drug for which this occurs. So we want to make sure that, of course, when Americans visit us, for example, that they have the right and they got an exemption prescription, they have the right to get that drug because, you know, we want that when we go to, you know, uh, Seattle or something for a trip or to Spokane or just somewhere for a trip. So we want that. But we want to make sure that this this operation, which appears to uh, significantly export our supply of a particular drug, isn't possible. Uh, I, it's not going after the, the individual patient, but it's going after really a scheme that seems to be intended to um, to take advantage of problems in the American market for Ozempic by using our market. Uh, are other provinces dealing with the same situation, or is this specific to British Columbia? Well, I don't know, but but there is a federal role here because obviously this deals with jurisdictions across the country and a role for other provinces. So we've raised this obviously um, with um, our my, uh, our colleagues in Nova Scotia. So we've been in touch obviously with Nova Scotia, and we are also writing to all the other health ministers. Um, this may be, at the moment, a particular BC problem, but it may move to other provinces should, for example, we take the action I'm talking about. Right? So I, I think that um, I think it's important that we have a, a Canadian approach to these issues, and we'll be working with other provinces to see that. But we're not waiting for that. We're taking action in BC to ensure that, uh, that, the, that uh, type, patients with type 2 diabetes in BC have access to this drug. Uh, do you find that the drug works? And I, I'm not asking you as a, as a medical professional because you're not a doctor, but you certainly uh, have in the past talked about uh, dealing with diabetes yourself. Um, uh, do you find that it, uh, it it has been helpful for those who do take it for that reason? Well, the endocrinologists who wrote to me, I think about 18 of them, mm-hmm. before we provided what's called second-line coverage under Pharmacare and asked for that coverage, that for their patients, they strongly think that. I, I don't have any expertise in the matter. I have type 1 diabetes, so I take insulin. That's mm-hmm. my, uh, that's the drug I, I require, and I take that. I don't take the type 2 dra- diabetes drugs, which have a different effect on the body and are dealing with really um, different issues. But uh, this drug has, uh, I think, shown itself to be effective. It's why we cover it uh, in, by Pharmacare, and uh, I think it's one of a number of drugs that's improving the treatment and the overall outcomes of people with type 2 diabetes. So uh, I, I think the drug um, uh, serves a real and important purpose. But, uh, but there is a challenge sometimes when drugs develop, um, you know, uh, secondary uh, results or use for off-label use. Sometimes that can be positive, of course, uh, and we've seen this many times. Uh, I can refer to drugs like Lucentis end up being used for other things. But I think that uh, I think in the case of uh, Ozempic, our focus is type 2 diabetes and the care it provides for type 2 diabetes. And there's lots of interest. Um, it's been mentioned by Kim Kardashian. You can't watch a Raptors game right now without them putting Ozempic on the court. You know, there's Hudson's Bay and Ozempic, I think, that are on the court. They're superimposed on the court as advertising. 
Um, you can't watch uh, a hockey game without seeing it on the sideboards, I think, these days. And, of course, it's probably the most advertised product on TV in the last number of months. I don't have a lot of time to watch TV. I prefer the radio, uh, Jeff. But, uh, but, um, uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, for anyone watching TV, they've heard about Olympic, that's for sure. <laughs> there you go. I think you're going to be watching a lot of TV over the next few months with the NBA playoffs coming, so uh, that's just my Well, <laughs> I, I'm, the Raptors are only in the play-in game, so I may be so discouraged I don't watch the rest. We'll see. There you go. Well, Minister, thanks for your time. Big issue, important issue. I really appreciate you making time for us today. Hey, take care. Hey, talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.